Welcome to Fracking and Health, Ask an Expert. The Endocrine Disruption Exchange has been studying the health impacts from unconventional oil and gas development, also known as fracking, since 2004. In each episode, our Executive Director, Carol Kwiatkowski, asks an expert to answer a question on how fracking may affect your health. You can submit a question at TEDx.org. Welcome to Episode 8, where we ask, how did the state of Maryland ban fracking? I'm talking with Brooke Harper, Maryland Policy Director at Chesapeake Climate Action Network. She was instrumental in leading Maryland to become the first state with proven gas reserves to ban fracking by legislative action. Welcome, Ms. Harper. Thank you for having me. I know you have a lot of great information to share, so we're going to get right to it. Tell us about the Maryland ban on fracking and how you accomplished it. Well, the Maryland ban on fracking was really a combination of a broad grassroots movement from the environmental community and from non-traditional partners and organizing like our state has never seen before. We were able to accomplish the ban by starting at a really local level. And it started with local groups of concerned citizens getting together and working in local municipalities to send the message to Annapolis that we didn't want to have fracking in our state. And so we looked at what New York had done in order to accomplish their ban. And what they had done was they had moved county by county where there were gas reserves and banned fracking, basically making it unprofitable if fracking were to come into that state because of all the barriers that they put up. And in Maryland, most of the accessible shale was out in Western Maryland. And the legislators there were staunchly opposed to a ban on fracking and just touted the economic development that that part of our state needed and really just ignored the cries of the people saying that they were frightened that the rural way of life would be ruined and that their environmental and environment would be degraded. And so what we did was we started to do a robust resolution and ban campaign. It started in Prince George's and Montgomery County, which are Maryland's two most populous counties. And both of them were sitting on top of shale reserves, not accessible and not likely to be accessed, but because they were the two most populous counties, we did two bands there um, and then started branching out to all geographic areas of the state while building power in Western Maryland. And in Western Maryland, we had two townships that had banned the practice, Mountain Lake Park and Friendsville, and we started a campaign in Frostburg, Maryland, which was the most populous city out in Western Maryland. And we got a group of community folks together to do that and looked at the vote numbers for the city council. And we found out that only about 300 to 400 people voted in each election. And so we knew that was the number that we needed in order to show them that their seats were at stake if they didn't act on this issue. And so what we did was we collected over 700 petitions, started a visibility campaign. I remember going up there prior to the elections and there were more no fracking signs than there were Hillary and Trump signs. So I think that really helped to drive home the point that Western Marylanders did not want fracking, which is messaging that was desperately needed downstate. And then for the rest of the areas, 
we also had people who weren't in danger of being fracked speaking out. And we launched some campaigns in very conservative areas too, and were able to win those. And in the interim, aside from the resolution and the ban campaign, we also engaged non-traditional partners and your not typical allies in environmental movements. So prior to the start of session, we engaged the faith community and have the heads of den denominations sign on to a pledge supporting the fracking ban. And we were able to um, host a program we call Climate in the Pulpits, where we had community members that were going to be impacted by fracking give guest sermons in congregations across the state and have people sign petitions in their congregations to speak out against fracking. And we also engaged the NAACP and had them make it a primary feature of their lobby day and had speakers from there. And so we really just formed a robust coalition of non-typical um, non um, allies. We also relied heavily on the business community and had a business sign on with hundreds of businesses that were also opposed to fracking due to how the environmental degradation would impact their businesses. And I think it was all of that, plus really digging in and making sure that people showed up and had a voice in Annapolis at our capital. We had over a thousand people marching down the streets of Annapolis um, saying that they didn't want fracking. We had over 600 people attend lobby days to speak out against fracking and just that constant pressure of phone calls and in-person visits and really having a presence in Annapolis while we came in strong with all of these bans and resolutions across the state really forced the hand of the legislature to do the right thing. And we also knew that we faced a lot of opposition in the Senate committee where the bill would be drawn out because what they wanted to do was to introduce a two year, an additional two year moratorium that would go county by county and virtually allowing the Western Maryland counties to allow fracking and to allow the counties that didn't want fracking to ban it. Um, and we came back with the messaging that we, we all live downstream and for them to make it a county by county decision wasn't acceptable. And in order to hone that message after it passed through the House of Delegates, a group of faith leaders and Western Marylanders and activists like myself we did a sit-in on the Capitol steps to show just how strongly that we didn't want fracking in our communities. And so the Annapolis 13, as we donned ourselves, um, we all chose to act in civil disobedience in order to make the strongest statement that we possibly could. And we were anchored by communities of faith saying why it was so important to protect God's creation, as well as with landowners from Western Maryland because those are really the voices that we wanted to put up front. And the next day after the civil disobedience and after a years long robust campaign, our governor announced that he would support the ban on fracking and cited that we couldn't endanger our waters and we couldn't endanger our community and open up to fracking. And the science was clear that it wasn't safe. And so that's been a great victory. It's been the most meaningful campaign that I've ever worked on a lot of great information about strategy and messaging and coalition building. Are there specific lessons you learned that you would like to share with other NGOs that might be engaging in this process? 
I think one, engage your grassroots and to give them meaningful work to do and to have them be the voices of their communities. I think having constituents talk to their local city councils and crowded town halls is really what helped to put this issue on the map and to also have health information about how natural gas infrastructure impacts communities. One of the ways that we were very fortunate is that John Hopkins had just finished a release of three studies that they were doing. And it did prove that fracking had an impact on um, adverse birth impacts on folks having headaches and nausea and asthma and how this, how fracking actually degraded the health of communities. And I think that was one of the things that helped to bolster our argument amongst just the sheer opposition of constituents across the state. We're certainly aware of, of how important those health effects are. And do, were there other things that um, you think really motivated the lawmakers to adopt the ban? I think just the, first of all, just the wide breadth of our coalition of having the NAACP, of having faith groups, of having business owners come out and speak against fracking was really helpful. And folks from counties and districts that necessarily wouldn't be impacted from fracking coming and calling their legislators and meeting face to face with them was also a really important tactic. That's really important for people to know. So this um, took Maryland, I believe, six years to get from start to finish. Um, do you have steps? So it's a long time. It takes some commitment. Do you have mm -hmm. advice um, for how an organization um, would get started on something like this? What are the um, the first steps? You know, who are some, where are some great resources, people to contact, that sort of thing? I would say go to your grassroots if you have local environmental groups that are engaged in this issue to sit down and have a meeting with them and discuss some tactics about how can they bring this up to their local municipalities and start those conversations and to go to other grassroots organizations for training resources. That was a central component is to you know, not only just say to raise your voices against fracking, but to give people the tools to do so. So if you don't have those tools accessible, for instance, teaching folks how to petition or giving them a lobbying training, that would be a really good place to start is to be able to have and harness those resources in order to mobilize your grassroots. And there's plenty of groups that do that, including my own organization, Chesapeake Climate Action Network, that can give you some helpful documents on grassroots tools and things like that. Um, and Sierra Club and Food and Water Watch, all of us have a grassroots component to our organizations and I'm sure we'd be happy to help folks out with some basic tools and resources on how to get started. So is there anything else you'd like to add? I think for communities that are facing natural gas infrastructure or for folks that are trying to start a ban campaign in their own states to never give up hope. One of the things that we heard over and over again was that it couldn't be done and that it was impossible. And I think not believing that and still driving forward no matter what um, is, is an important lesson and the most critical lesson that folks have to learn through all of this. And that 
sometimes, you know, we faced over a million dollar um, in lobbying against from the big oil and gas industry. And what did that was we were able to out lobby and out campaign the oil and gas industry because we all held hopes, hope in our hearts. And so, so for parting words, I would just say for communities, don't give up hope, keep pressing forward. And that's how we win. Terrific. Well, congratulations on your work and the success. And thank you so much for taking the time to share this information with us. Thank you for having me again. Thank you for listening. TEDx is a nonprofit research institute funded by grants from private foundations and by donations from individuals who care about our health and the environment. Visit our website at TEDx.org for more information on what we do, to submit a question for an expert, or to make a donation.